0: This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple
1: near you.
2: Hi, I'm Brian Cranston, and you're listening to the Pantheon Network.
0: Hey, I'm Nick DiMatteo, and welcome to Music Is Not a Genre, the Interview Edition. This is interview number 31. It's also season five, episode 36. Thank you, as always, for watching and listening. Please remember to support this podcast at patreon.com/slash music is not a genre. You can go to YouTube.com/slash at music is not a genre and subscribe. You get to see, for those of you just listening, you get to see all of these videos and more there, so please do that. Subscribe and share. My website is nickdemadio.com where you get all of this and all of the music and, oh, everything, acting and voiceovers and graphics and blogs, et cetera. Please go there. Sign up for the free newsletter. And finally, please listen to and support my band, Rec, at recarea.bandcamp.com. With me today, I'm very, very excited, is Christian Swain. He is the CEO of Pantheon Media. Christian, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Nick. How about yourself? Not bad. Thanks for uh, having me. Oh, absolutely. Thanks for saying yes. It's been a a fun kind of few-month journey with you.
1: Yeah, you're a new addition to the Pantheon Pod fam, as we like to say around here. So
0: welcome. Welcome. Thank you. And I guess since we're on the subject now, I'm kind of doing things a little bit in reverse of what I usually do. Tell people a little bit about Pantheon Media, what it is, what it does.
1: Sure. You know, we are a podcast company, Soup to Nuts. We do it all from pre-production, production, production, distribution, monetization. We have social media, reach out, uh, ad sales, the whole kit and caboodle for a, a podcast company. We entered this new industry before it was even an industry we got our start in 2014 and started off as just podcasters and then ended up with a network it's a nascent business it's a brand new industry and so we're riding the wave and what's kind of cool about jumping in early on is that you end up being a jack of all trades you learn all the all the jobs and so we are sitting in a very nice position as the largest music-only podcast network out in the ecosphere. So we're pretty excited about what we've achieved. Wow, the largest. That's that's incredible.
0: How many uh, podcasts
1: do you have? We have uh, just over 100 now. It's pretty broad. Uh, we don't believe in a particular type of music. We love all music, and that means everything, everywhere, historically to the present. Every genre that you can think of, from classical to jazz to rock to pop to hip-hop to—it doesn't matter—bluegrass. We really think that music is a language, and it's the language of the—they they say if math is the is the language of the universe— Music is based on math and therefore I call it its voice. It is the voice of the universe. And it speaks to all of us probably more so than any other art form in existence. It's almost like the sense of smell in memory. You know, you hear a song and you haven't heard it in 30 days, it will Take you right back to that moment that you uh, you first heard that you fell in love with that song and uh, it'll make you do crazy things, you know, good and bad, (laughs) you know, and and the the ability, especially like pop songs, you know, the ability to tell a cohesive story in three minutes or less. That's pretty extraordinary. So, uh, you know, we love delving into what makes it work when you get right down to it, you know, is it talent? Is it education? Why these particular notes strung together mean something more than another set of notes strung together? Mm. Any way we can slice it and open it up and appear into it, that's what people want to hear. They really are interested in, you know, pulling the curtain back And seeing, you know how uh, how this is made. Now, for us, especially since we started off with uh, with a historical podcast called Rock and Roll Archaeology, this whole pantheon media starts with Rock and Roll Archaeology. You know, it was a a deep dig, to use an archaeological term, that took the music of the late twentieth century and looked at it from a lens of how music, culture, and technology wove together to create this this. Big explosion in music. A lot of people don't know that, you know, musicians were not flying around in the equivalent of private jets back in the 18th century when Mozart uh, existed. They were contract employees, you know, barely making a living. And a few did really well. Most, you know, not so much, but with the rise of technology especially the late 20th century, recording techniques had begun to mature. Certainly after World War II, there was a lot of new technology that was going from a military purpose into a commercial purpose. And uh, a lot of that technology found its way into music studios and live sound and everything else that goes along with that. And the American democratic system which was the dominating culture post war had something to say. And the first thing it had to say was it's about the people. It's not about the elites rock and roll and all that music that came about. It is, is a common man's art form. And it was considered lowbrow at the time. We, we feel that needs to be elevated because it is a connecting point in how the culture shifted from. Pre 1960s to the world we live in today. And the music helped spread that message of the counterculture. And the counterculture really is the culture that we exist in. So we take this American democratized culture that's out there, uh, a can do attitude, a DIY aesthetic. And, you know, you hearken back to African American blues, white Appalachian country gospel for both the black and white uh, churches but mostly the black churches and maybe a little bit of jazz and other pop music that's going on at the time and you concoct a brand new soup that we call rock and roll and we just think that that late 20th century all the music in it all of it country disco hip-hop whatever you want to call it that is all rock and roll because it's about an attitude it's about uh, this this street type of music that rises up and speaks universally to other peoples around the, the the globe. So to watch rock and roll become a global art phenomenon in real time was the first time that that had ever happened. You know, it, think back at the impressionists at the the end of the nineteenth and early twentieth century. Uh, this was an art movement that really you know took a while to get going. In fact, it's most famous and and, and probably the greatest artist is Van Gogh out of The Impressionists, and he never sold a fucking painting when he was uh, alive. So to say, you know, yeah, Monet and, and Manet and then and, uh, Renoir and some of the others, you know, they did okay, but that art movement really grew as time went on it wasn't a smashing success in fact it needed to you know have sharp elbows and 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 fight its way into the the art world as it was uh with rock and roll boy out the gate 1955 you know that kid from tupelo mississippi shows up and uh, goes on ed sullivan and the world changes pretty much uh, overnight now interestingly The man tried to contain it because the last thing that the establishment in uh, the United States wanted was white white kids and black kids hanging out with each other. Uh, They'd spent a lot of effort trying to refrain from that. They hoped and uh, thought this was a fad and that it would go away, and uh, they did their best to make that happen. And, you know, by 1960, uh, you know, Elvis is in the army, uh, Chuck Berry's in jail little richard went back to the priesthood buddy holly richie valens the big Popper, dead a lot of people don't know that 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 initial class that 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 first class that you know the sister rosetta thorps and uh, jerry lee uh you know carl perkins it's a small group of people it's like you know 10 to 20 people that's it those are the guys that were really making that early music really happen and then you know it kind of goes away well it went away here in some respects you know black music kept making some really good music white music tended to kind of revert back to the pat boons and trying to follow the sinatra sort of way but you know these mop tops over in that uh, port town uh in the west coast of england uh, liverpool picked up on this stuff because they'd get these records and you know to them this was like it, it was the gospel they uh, internalized it recreated it and sent it back to us on february 9th 1964 And the world has never been the same since, you know, that kicked off the counterculture and, uh, you know, the Beatles, Bob Dylan, Crosby, Stills and Nash, Janis Joplin, Aretha Franklin, they all these people created you know the explosion the the nuclear explosion as we said in our uh, episode seven when the beatles arrive uh in america and how how it changed and we're we're still politically we're still fighting those battles yes here uh in the states it's exactly the same battle that we've been fighting since the 1960s in fact i can pretty much tell somebody's political leanings just by asking them if they think the 60s was good or bad oh Um, yeah god yes yeah
2: So, uh, so we started with this
1: thing, Rock and Roll Archaeology, and that's our deep dig. Uh, it's uh, seven to 10,000 scripted words. Uh, it's highly researched. Uh, my writing partner, Richard Evans, is a journalist by trade, and so it's uh, a double, triple sourced. Uh, we rarely make mistakes, and I think we've only been called out twice, and both uh, were corrected in, in minor. Like uh, one, I can't remember the other one. I, the one I do remember was that we transposed the address for Motown uh, Records in Detroit, and somebody called us out on that and so hey they were right you know we we fixed it with the next episode out there and because it took us so long to to put these out we ended up having somebody send us an email one day basically saying hey can't you do something else in between and we were like oh yeah i think yeah i think we can and so my business partner peter ferrioli our coo kind of said we need to form a network." So the first thing we did was we created the original six. These were six shows that we produced in-house. Two of them were recaps. Uh, we did a recap on vinyl, uh, if you guys remember that show uh, on HBO. uh only lasted one season. Very dense. A huge production. Too many cooks in the kitchen. Uh, there's a lot of good reasons why it never made it out of uh, the first season into a second season. But there was a lot of good music in it. And that's what we focused on. I mean, every episode was just... So dense with uh, with music. My Shazam blew up uh, several times just trying to get the the number of songs in each episode. And then Roadies, we did Roadies on Showtime, which had the opposite problem. We 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 always say that uh, vinyl had too much head, none of heart, and Roadies had too much heart, none of head. We do feel that Roadies kind of got better as it went along, and by the last episode, it was like it was really baked, and it, it could have gone on as a second season, unfortunately that uh, didn't happen. And, you know, and I'll, I'll also say that fictional rock and roll is hard. And that's a that's a tough thing. Anyway, so we did those two. Uh, and then we created a couple other shows, uh, one on movies we called Real Rock. Uh, uh, I had a friend who was a 30 year vet at the San Francisco Public Library, and we brought her in and called it the Rock and Roll Librarian, and and things like that. So we did that. And then the next thing we know, we had people like yourself send an email or a call and say, hey, how do I get on your network? And we were like, oh, yeah, network. And so we started bringing in third-party shows uh like yourself. And we made the decision very early on that we wanted to specialize. Uh We felt that the future of podcast networks was specialization. You can't be a jack-of-all-trades to all people. Early on in any kind of an industry, you know, you do whatever needs, needs to be done. But once an industry starts to, you know, begin to solidify, create internal and external rules, you need to specialize a, a little bit more. And so, you know, our jam is music, and we figured we'll specialize in that, and that has served us very well. So we ended up, like I said, becoming the the largest music-only podcast network in the world. Now, I'm not sure if that's a great thing or a, a good business decision or a bad business decision, because music uh, as a subject matter is not at the top of the podcast subject matter lists, you know, crime, drama. Self-help, religion, you know, things like that. So what I need is a rock and roll crime drama, self-help religious podcast and uh, <laughs> we wipe out all the charts. So we did that. And the second thing that I think that was really interesting for us is that we took the rock and archaeology feed and because people were asking for more content, we just stuck the content into the rock and archaeology feed. Now, somewhere around 2017, 2018, there was a, there was a shift in the industry going from downloading podcasts. To streaming podcasts. Spotify obviously had a lot to do with that. Uh, at the same time, Spotify spent about a billion dollars acquiring podcast companies. So that also elevated the industry and it actually created an industry. It really was kind of a hobbyist sort of. Uh, if you remember how personal computers came about. Uh, there was like a homebrew kind of uh, situation. And then, you know, then the Apples and Apple being one and the uh, the IBMs, you know, made, you know, legitimate consumer-based uh, PCs. And we saw that happen with Amazon and Pandora and iHeart and uh, people like that jump in and really begin to focus on podcasts. But reel that back to us. So because we just kept sticking Everything into the Rock Archaeology feed. We had some people complain because, you know, when you download, that's taking up storage space on your device. When you stream, you don't have that problem. So we we why am I getting all these podcasts in my uh, my feed? And we basically just trained the audience. We said, and, and it, it, technologically, it worked for us because we were moving from download to streaming and everybody was getting there very quickly. But then we didn't have to, they didn't have to take up that storage space. So all we had to do is say, think of it like a magazine. You know, you you flip the pages, you see the headline. If it speaks to you, read the article. And if not, well, you know, go on your way and go to the next one. So that's what we did. And that's what Pantheon is all about.
0: I love that you say that you specialize and at the same time can keep the content of Pantheon so diverse. I mean, you described it better better than I could, that you do not limit it by genre or even by approach. And I've only scratched the surface of what kind of podcasts are in Pantheon. You have people who only review books that tell a story about music and I mean, it's just, it, or people who only focus on one band or something or one artist and then others who, like I go all over the map and then people who do just one specific genre and I mean that's my people that speaks to me right. you know right. that makes me happy to be a part of the of the family but to even just to say that anyone who has not even it's pantheonpodcast.com right? correct uh, that's the website yes anyone who has not explored that you have to go and explore that because I mean but don't base it on the two of us there is music in there that is being covered that you will love Period. It's just everything is there. It's incredible. Well, thanks for saying that, Nick. And, you know, and again, you can
1: find the main feed on any of the podcast platforms, just Pantheon Podcasts. Just put that in Spotify or wherever. And that will be that main feed that will have all of the shows in it that that show up. And we do spread them around a little bit. Uh, You know, we don't put out every show every day. You know, we kind of ask the contributors to kind of spread it out. And everybody's doing a really great job of scheduling their shows to, to kind of uh, give some, some breathing room for the, the listener out there. But again, you know, weirdly, Nick, and I'll use this as a double uh, here, we are kind of following the Rolling Stone magazine model. Mm. You know, what was put together in the 1960s was music first. Okay, and it was all about music, and there was very little music journalism back then, especially when it came to pop and rock music. There was very, very little of that. It's not until the 1970s that you start to see the Cream magazines and uh, Circus, and and you know, and and obviously Rolling Stone becoming you know a, a valuable piece of journalism on par with uh, you know the greats of the day, uh, you know, like the Atlantic or the New Yorker, you know, these really, really prestigious. Types of uh, of properties. Um, But it started off as music only. And then it moved a little bit into other pieces of the culture, you know, like politics, television, movies, you know, anything that kind of was the lifestyle. Of the average rock and roll fan out there, and so we're kind of doing the same sort of thing. We're focused on music and then music adjacent. So you'll see you'll see some shows that are like culture music culture uh type of uh, of shows uh, as well. and we're looking for for more and more of that.
0: Yeah, no, I love that. It, it's one of the things that struck me and even just about the description, you know, you started with the history of music and what you brought into explaining that. And my, what I like to say is the, the reason I call my podcast Music Is Not a Genre is not just because music itself should not be confined by what it is labeled as, but that the entire world of music should not be separated from the rest of what's going on in the world, that it connects, as you said, to culture and to politics and society and social issues and into technology. You made the analogy of Impressionism And it made me think of, well, they had the struggle to become part of the establishment. And then once they did, you had post-impressionism and expressionism and then cubism, cubism, all of them, and then pop art. And every time something new came along, someone said, you can't be a part of this elitist club. And then eventually they got subsumed into the greater world of art. And now we think of all of that as just great art. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of the, in a more of a, a smaller way, more recent how the history of rock and roll has become each version had to find a way over the years to legitimize itself, quote unquote, to be be considered. And I think the more of us who are doing what we're doing are kind of still, I mean, certainly we have people now who consider lots of rock to be worthy of jazz and classical and all of that. But, you know, the closer you get to recent history, the more people will denigrate or disdain what's happened. Oh, it's always hard. Yeah, it's always hard. And I'm glad you brought that up,
1: Nick, because that's been a thing for me most of my life. I am not the guy to go to to find the latest and greatest band. Never have been. Right. You know, I've depended on other people to do that for me. And you know, let me do say that another aspect of Pantheon is, like I said, we're a bit of Rolling Stone or music journalism. We're also a little bit of FM DJs out there, you know, bringing the the background and, uh, you know, and telling you a little bit about uh, what's going on with the artists and what's happening and, and, and all that. And a little bit of the music store clerk, you know, who had the goods, you know, it was like, oh, 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 dude, I know you like these bands. So this is the next band you need to listen to, you know, that sort of thing. You know, those guys are great. That's not exactly me, but there are plenty of people in the network that do that sort of thing. I need a catalog. I need something to to hang my hat on and say, oh, yeah, there's like it's it's worthy of my dollars. I think it's fair to say that I'm not that much of a gambler. I certainly don't like I go to Vegas. I don't I won't even put a quarter in a fucking machine So because <laughs> uh, the odds are so against me. I just I, logically I have a hard time trying to justify that sort of thing. Uh, You know, I mean, I've been an entrepreneur almost all my life. That is gambling, but it's a much safer bet. To me, it's like the difference between giving my money to the stock market versus giving my money to Vegas. I'll give my money to the stock market because the odds are much better for me. You know what I mean? So, you know, I'll, I'll risk. If I can calculate the odds are in my favor and, uh, you know, you know, betting on myself and betting on, you know, a good idea is, uh, you know, makes, makes a lot of sense. Love that. Yeah. But, you know, looking back at, uh, at a catalog or, or an artist that has achieved some significance is much easier than, you know, looking at somebody going, Are they going to be great? I've made that mistake too many times myself. Like Jane's Addiction, for example. I heard Jane's Addiction for the first time in about 87, 88, and was like, these guys are going to be giant. And while they did okay, they were a little ahead of their time. You know, had they showed up in about 1991 – they might have, you know, so they were kind of a precursor to what was coming, the grunge movement primarily. And so of which they're, they're, they're still associated with, you know, Lollapalooza and all of that. You know, there's a lot of Pearl Jam, a lot of Nirvana and stuff like that. Soundgarden it, it went around uh, that, uh, that period uh, of time. So, yeah, so I'm glad there are people out there that do that. And get it right more often than they get it, uh they get it wrong. I'm not that guy. I wish I was. Uh, and
0: I'll be, yeah. <laughs>
1: you know, I, I wish I could like pick up on like the latest sounds and go, oh yeah, this is this is uh this is gonna be it. Yeah, but to each their own.
0: I like where you took the the answer that you gave to my question because the Last, even though I lost the train of thought there, but yes, I got there. Thanks for the thanks for the assist. <laughs> we have that in common. We, you know, we we like tangents, and I'm okay with that. That's that's okay. I, I, one of the last podcast episodes I did had to do with well, I called it time bias. How very often, to maybe a lesser extent, young people do not look to older music and say that was amazing music until they grow and learn and and and. Hear. <laughs> Maybe it may be the same for us
2: too. I kind of remember, like, not really digging Bob Dylan until I got into my twenties. You know, (laughs) no, no, exactly.
0: We had to kind of get there, right? And at the same time, you've got the older people who, which I guess we're a part of that, and and you know, most of us after a certain point. Sort of lose the thread or don't maybe don't explore as much or there just doesn't speak to us in a certain way. So it's harder for us to engage with what's going on. And our cutoff point is different. It's different for everybody. I, I know a guy who when he, I would, I guess he would have been about 22, which was in 1990. And I just did a gig with him a couple of months ago. He's a drummer and he said, there is no good music that's come out after 1990. I stopped listening to music mm-hmm. then. That was his cutoff. I know people whose cutoff was, you know, in their 30s or in their 40s or whatever. And and even though I do tend to prefer music that I grew up with and bands that I know, I do still listen to new music and try to stay in touch with that and try to incorporate some of those ideas into the music I create and everything.
1: Well, as a creator, I think I think you have to. You have to keep up with. The trends and and what's changing and especially you know in an art form where the technology changes so rapidly so cool you know it's just it, it, it and it's light speed nowadays given digital technology you know I I just don't know you you'd get pigeonholed and stuck you know as a you know a retro band or something like that if you don't you know try at least try to find that now I'll say this It's way harder today to come up with a new sound. And and, and if I can go off this tangent just for a second. Yeah, yeah. You know, again, music culture technology. People can understand the music part really easily. The culture part, it's not too difficult for them to go, oh yeah, I can see these feedback loops that occurred. The technology side's a little bit harder unless you are in the business or a musician or you've seen this process. But, you know, I mean, recording you know, just the human voice is, you know, like about 150 years old, that's it, you know? And so the first step was like trying to perfect That and if you know that history, you know it's not until uh, radio arrives uh, in the the twenties and and it's really the thirties that you really hear the technological shift in radio gets very clean, high production, lots of value uh, going on there, and this became you know the primary form of entertainment for most Americans before the advent of television and then television arrives and television takes radio and puts it on steroids. I think we quoted like there were less than a million people at a television in 1950 And there were close to 200 million by 1960, you know, so within a decade, it had shifted that, you know, that became the primary form of of entertainment and where people got their information, you know, news, cultural events, sporting uh, events. On things like that, or all wrapped into that, and still to this day, television's changing rapidly, and it's affecting now movies. You know, movies were always scared of television. Immediately, they were very scared of television, and they started making things to to make that difference, like Panavision and CinemaScope, and oh, yeah. you know, all those big sword and sandal uh, epics and things like that that really, you know, you needed to go to the big screen to to capture right. Yeah. And then in the mid seventies, uh, you know, when when things like Jaws and Star Wars and these blockbusters showed up. Then sound started to become a big part of the movie going experience, which you could not replicate in television at home uh, uh, very well. Yeah. But nowadays, everybody's got a sixty five inch flat screen and a surround sound, and <laughs> so you know movies uh, have a much harder time getting people uh, into the getting butts into the seats. And the only way to do it is to make these big, giant spectacles almost – you know, these Marvel movies are very similar to the sword and sandal type of uh, biblical epics that uh, that we got uh, when television first arrived. And so, uh, you know, Hollywood's just kind of repeating itself. I don't know how successful that's going to be because the – you know, the one thing that movies always had better than television was the storytelling because they had the money. And so they'd get the, 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 the talented writers and they would snatch them up and, and move them to there. That's not necessarily the case anymore. And so, you know, the really quality writers end up on television. They have much more freedom, much more creative freedom. They have a, a bigger palette to tell a, a story arc. You know, you're not limited to an hour and a half to three hours. You have uh, shows that, uh, you know, are these 10-hour storytelling uh, devices when you get right down to it, uh, you know, just told in 10 episodes. Uh, but it's a, it's all thought out of as a single arc, you know, beginning, middle, and an end uh, and all of that so so it's uh it's an interesting uh paradigm that we find ourselves in and uh, and so if i can take it to music you know to go back a little bit about new music and why it's difficult is because the rest of the recording process was about achieving perfection and trying to fix everything that you could fix you know uh, we used to do it with razor blades and try to fix it uh, tape loops or you know various mostly a mechanical type of repair jobs, and then digital arrived in the 1980s and MIDI, and then you start to get uh, the digital composing uh, software, what are called DAWs, and uh, you know now you have these things that can you can replace a single note, yes. and they do. Yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you can put the rhythm track on the grid perfectly. And they do. And about 10 or 15 years ago, we achieved perfection. You could, you know, every song was absolutely perfect. It wasn't a note out of place. But to me, it kind of made it a little soulless. And I think the, kids are beginning to figure that out. You know, America is a lovely place, uh, especially if you love backlashes. You know, we're 180 degrees one way. And then uh, instead of like, you know, making an adjustment, we go 180 degrees the other way. So (laughs) so so now I hear I hear, you know, a little more grid, a little more this, you know, humanness to desire. And to your point, yeah, I, I have a 23 year old who, you know, when he was about 16, 15 i think he was 15 you know at the dinner table one night he had been asked to be in a talent show because he played a little guitar and uh, he had gone to you know the the music uh camp during the summer and that sort of stuff he was in junior high it was in eighth grade so uh uh some parent called and said uh, hey we really want michael to play in this band but he he's he, he says he doesn't want to do it can you guys talk to him we we're like yeah sure so at the dinner table that night we brought it up and we said you know michael uh you know why don't you want to do this he goes I'm sorry, rock and roll is just not cool. And I was you want to talk about a knife to the heart. Yeah. right. Yeah. Now uh, once he got to college, oh uh, gosh, the classic rock started coming out. Hey, this song's really awesome. You know, this Elton John guy wow, you know. Yeah. And now 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 he's got all you know, he still has a say, Bob, don't get me wrong, uh, and there's nothing wrong with that. But like I gravitated to Bob Dylan in my twenties. He's gravitating to some of that great classic rock and there's, there's a lot of it to be had because, you know, like I said, this recording technique kind of came to maturity in the 1960s and certainly by the 1970s. In fact, if you put on a piece of music, uh, a label uh, piece of music from the 1970s or today, it's very difficult to tell the difference in uh, a high fidelity between the two uh, pieces. If you go back in time, the 60s, you can hear a little bit of difference. Certainly in the 50s, you can really hear it. You go back even further and it starts to get really reedy and thin. The technology just wasn't uh, available to achieve what was needed. I mean, you know, you just if you go back and you look at how Jeff Emmerich changed um, how he recorded using microphone technique and what was allowed versus what he was able to do that changed the Beatles sound dramatically, of which everybody listened to the Beatles and then followed suit from there. You know, you can see how these things come about. And so the other problem and the big problem for new music today is a finding a new sound that hasn't been done before. Uh that's really hard to do because everybody and their brother can Make music. You can cheaply get a DAW and a little keyboard player, a keyboard and the sequencer, and you're off and running making songs. And now you can make them sound pretty good. You know, are they going to be hits? No, I, I think there's a, there's a certain level of talent and education and experience that's required to do that. Although, you know, the ability to get there by watching, say, just YouTube. We'll get you there much quicker than we could ever do that. Oh, yeah. You know? And I also think that's another reason why I'm seeing the electric guitar come back a little bit uh these days is because the kids can. They can, you know, get on YouTube and figure out how to master the damn thing in six months as opposed to years that it would take for us to, you know, just, you know, plugging through, uh, you know, the music books and listening to the radio or getting on tape and then having a that tape recorder and go back and what's that?
0: What's that? Yeah, that, you
1: <laughs> you can't hear you know, that sort of thing. So, yeah. so yeah, yeah, like all things, double edged sword, but you know, at its peak in the rock and roll in the mid 1970s, uh, maybe if you want to say its peak was the mid 1980s, you know, there were maybe a thousand people involved in it. I'll be fair and say 10,000 people total in the entire music business okay God. uh and now there's hundreds of thousands if not millions of people and you have to compete against that you know on a everybody's flat now you know those those who have money and can market uh can can do so but again the art has to speak for itself and it has to connect or, or it doesn't. And, and one, one never knows that, Uh, you know, I've heard many stories. I'm sure you have as well of uh people thinking this was a hit and it wasn't and vice versa. In fact, the vice versa is really the more common story is like, we just thought it was a throwaway. And uh, you know, and that's, that ended up being the in the big hit uh, out there
0: those are the stories we cling to to as uh, you know as creators like oh you know no one expected this song to become a hit and it came out of nowhere and you know, but you're right yeah there are people who spend a lot of money and marketing and time trying to make something a hit and it doesn't speak to people yeah
1: well and then add add the fact that uh, there's no money in recorded music either uh you know so and and you know The effort that goes into producing a piece of music and getting it uh, in shape to be uh, publicly presented both live and and in a recording studio, you know, you you have to make it uh, so that it can uh, withstand multiple listens, you know, and, and if you're good, you know, you make it dense and intricate in a subtle way. And I I don't know if you get that from, uh, you know, I I play in a cover band. I I don't do original music and I haven't done original music in, in decades. But here's what I know. Every song that's ever made it there's something magical about it, and you got to figure out what that is. It may be the chord structures, it may be the little melody that is put in, it may be a little hook, it may be just attitude, it may be just you know how uh, the two melody instruments played off each other or something. But somewhere, somewhere in that song, it could be the cheesiest song. If it got into the top forty, there's some sort of magic to it somewhere somehow. Right. And we got to figure out what that is, because that's what keeps you coming back. That's what keeps you listening. Is that magic? Where is that magic? What is it? Yeah. Uh, You know, and even when you figure it out, you feel good because you figured it out and you'll keep coming back for that reason, too.
0: Right. And that doesn't necessarily mean you can figure out yourself how to replicate that or make it your own or make it, you know, find your way into that level of uh, connection that may include something, some, maybe some density, but at least has something that resonates with the people who are listening to it. I'm a part of, uh, to supplement the original music, as a lot of us do, I'm I'm a part of several cover bands, but the primary one is uh, Beatles. Like almost every weekend, somebody requests, we want a Beatles band for this party, you know. And if you're going to go to school about how to create a song that, that can live forever. <laughs> it, there's nobody better. Well, you know, when I started Rock and Roll Archaeology, it was one of my,
1: my big questions that I'd had, you know, most of my life. Uh, and, and it was really, it was a, a, um, a question on the matter of genius. What does that mean? Okay, and so to my point with the Beatles, how is it that the two greatest genius songwriters of the 20th century lived one mile apart from each other? So is it nature or nurture or is it a combination of both? In the end, we settled on, and I've already said, timing is a big factor with the Beatles. They just show up at the right time. It's just so uncanny in so many ways, both for Britain and for America. You know, because they, you know, their Beatlemania is 63 in, in the UK. Right, right. And these guys, basically, they're just coming out of the rebuild of World War II. You know, rationing had just finished, the conscription had just ended. And so they were feeling ebullient uh and and wanted to express that. And here's this music that's coming over from America that expresses that. You know, you take that and oh, what's the what's the the homegrown music that they were but skiffle? You take that and skiffle. And you put those two together and you can see where all these kids, you know, and Skipple, if you think about Skipple, that's depression level sort of music making because, you know, the UK was deep in, uh, in the, the rebuild project and all the money went to, to, you know, making homes that got bombed out after World War II and the cost of having to wage that war. You know, it took most of Europe 20, almost 20 years to, uh, to begin to, you know, turn itself into what it is today. And so they, you know, they bring this back to America. And so that explosion then creates a million imitators out there. And and we're still kind of in the Beatles world when you think about it. And so to your point, you know, 500 years from now, I'm not quite sure how many of these artists will be remembered. I think most of them will be Salieri's, huh. even the big ones, you know, but I, I mean, obviously, you know, the Beatles are at the, the top of the mountain. They're always going to be at the top of the mountain. You know, I'd, pop, I'd put Bob right up there next to him. There are a few others that belong in that category. You know, it won't be just that, but you know, you're going to get, you're gonna, you're, you know, you're just like you have in classical, you're going to get your Brahms and your Beethovens, you know, and your Strauss's. you know, it just all happened to show up in about a 50 year period, not a hundred year period. So, you know, I think Pink Floyd will probably be uh, still considered a big thing. And you you can kind of see it in the tribute bands out in the world these days, you know, who are the big tribute bands or to your point, who are the bands that are still being asked to be played? Right. You know, yeah. uh, Beatles are always high on the list. Thank God we do a Beatles medley. So it's always at the ready. Yeah, (laughs) Uh, I'm with you on that, you know, and to go back to this problem with our music is today, it's just it's a it's an ending. It's an ending of where musicians were treated extraordinarily special in the culture. Hence the term rock star. I mean, it was equivalent to Greek gods living on Earth. You know what they were able to achieve, what they were able to get away with, the flaws, the successes. It was very if if you know your Greek uh, uh, pantheon. By the way, we called the. Company Pantheon for that reason, home of the gods. Beautiful. You know, if you know a little bit about these flawed gods, they—they they, they are. They're like they're like fucking rock stars, and uh, I don't think that's sustainable when you get right down to it. And it's certainly not when the competition is—you know—from a thousand to ten thousand to a hundred thousand to a million or more. It's—it's it's about value and scarcity. You know, there's there's so many choices today, uh, especially for younger folks. You know, and and not just music. You know, um, as we were talking about in the green room before we got going there's so much that you don't need to leave the house for these days your your entire world can be conducted at home including all your socialization if you you know don't want to go anywhere and the pandemic proved that and uh, I don't know you know um, the kids may find that is uh, their future and and if so then What's going to happen to the venues? Because after recorded music, the only way to make money in music right now is live. And I'm seeing a lot of venues, uh, especially the smaller ones, close because there's not a sustainable path. If you don't have people coming in buying the drinks and uh, you know paying the bands, you're just not going to stick around much longer.
0: And it's something else you kind of mentioned in the green room was that the the uh, of late anyway, the foot traffic for clubs like that isn't quite what it was. And I think it was even dwindling before yeah. the pandemic, but now this generation of, of people who are used to consuming everything remotely don't have as much incentive to go out and not just to even like, you know, they might go to a, a club and there might be a band there and that's just an aside, yeah. but to actually actively seek out, let's say bands, they like great bands. They don't know at all. Good, good luck. Yeah. You know, it, yep. it's very hard to fill clubs, you know, with music, anything other than music that's super well known. And even then. it's tough. Yeah.
1: And it, so it's tough. So that's part of the reason why you see, like, you know, all of these classic rockers hang on for 50, 60 years is because it's it's hard to duplicate. They, they again, timing is everything they yeah just they kind of followed in the wake of that fab four and turned out that it ended up being big business because youth culture, this was how they determined their friends, their tribes, you know, your show's music is not a genre. Well, back in the day, music was very much a genre. (laughs) Uh, I mean, you know, you know, we, we, we just talked about this in one of our latest episodes, guitar, Mageddon episode 21, I believe where the, first real schism in you know, we, we talked about the mods and rockers and that's the first kind of schism that we see in rock and roll it was it was like two weekends in the uk at a couple of beach towns <laughs> the british press of course blew it out of proportion and made it like this big fucking thing and we've all had to live with it since yeah, yeah. but you know what you can say is there were the mods who were looking for, you know, the next iteration of the music. And then there were the rockers who preferred the rockabilly style, uh, you know, 1950s type of, of rock and roll. You know, hey, look, the future always wins out. Sorry, that's just the way the world works. Yep. <laughs> you can't be stuck in the past. The present only lasts for a moment. The future's all you got. Mm-hmm. So you better prepare for that. Wow. But in 1969, 1970, when we started to see the precursors of heavy metal, you know, hard rock, and we, we focused on Deep Purple, the big three Deep Purple, Black Sabbath, and Led Zeppelin, uh, you know, all came out about that same time. The yeah. music press even though it was small, really held their nose at that stuff. They did not like it at all, but the kids did, you know, I mean, come on, is there a bigger band of the 1970s than Led Zeppelin? No, but the music press just hated them uh, uh, at the time. Granted, did they need the press? No. And also, you know, they also did something which was a little unusual at the time. You know, they hid behind a mysterious wall. They created specifically Away from the press to create that sort of imagery that helped them along the way achieve that. You know, I mean, how many rumors and conspiracy theories did you hear about Led Zeppelin, you know, uh, back in the day? So, you know, it, it worked for then, but again, I, you can't, you, you. I, I just don't see how you could duplicate that today. No, certainly mysteriousness. I mean, Jesus, I you know, and and I, I hate to say it, but we're kind of at fault uh, uh, at some of that. I mean, our whole mission statement, as I said earlier, is to expose the backstage, to look behind the curtain, to see what the wizard is doing out there. Well, we're kind of ruining a big part of that mysteriousness, aren't <laughs> we? You know, I, I can say that. But at the same time, I do know this about history. And that is. That when you're in it, and and I'll go back to another piece that I was talking about earlier about vinyl and and roadies and how making fictional uh, rock and roll is difficult. And it's difficult in its moment because it's happening and there's so much real stories to be told that most people, they just want to hear the real stuff. They want to hear this, they want to hear that. But then what ends up happening is that institutional memory kind of goes away. That generation, and we'll say the baby boomers are beginning to die off and that memory doesn't exist anymore. And so what ends up happening Is again, this plays into my Greek God theory is that we mythologize, we create these mythologies and they become bigger than life and they turn into, you know, what eventually, you know, you know, think about what people are going to say about. David Bowie, a hundred years from now, you know, Whoa, what the hell? Look at this guy. What the, what's going, you know, it's just, you know, and, and there are many others that fit in that category. So think just think about kiss, you know, what are they going to say about kids? <laughs> yeah. You know, what, what does it say about us as a society? What is, you know, think, think about what, cause that's what they'll do. They're, they're going to try to figure out what we were about by looking at these artifacts and hence why we called the show rock and archaeology and how it's going to affect their current future well how it created their present i should say in the future it's going to be uh interesting to see you know people always ask me you know if, if and i don't do an interview show anymore i used to have an interview show i did about 150 of them and put it to rest because i'm busy on the, the the i can keep the one show i My CEO uh, activities uh, keep me busy on other stuff. So, but I'm always asked, you know, what, what, what is, what, you know, what's the golden interview that you could get? What's, you know, what's the one that you, and I, I know it for, I've known it from the moment and it's Paul McCartney. I mean, you know, I would want to talk to Paul McCartney. And I want, I would want to ask him, what's it like to, I know there's not a good answer. There's just not, but you know, what's it like to be the Mozart of this age and that knowing that, you know, 500 years from now, people are going to be dissecting your music, you know, as much as we do Mozarts these days. It was just that significant, you know, and, and they they have it one up on Mozart. Remember, he wasn't he was OK for his day, but he wasn't the big fucking star that he became after he died. You know, again, kind of like Van Gogh, right. you know, the Beatles, on the other hand. Oh, they got it all in real time. I mean, there's I don't think there's ever been anything like Beatlemania. I don't think it's ever been recreated. You know, and you're old enough to remember, you know, that the, the new Beatles were always coming down the pike. Always. That's- it was just a question of when. Never happened. You know, some, some got close, you know, but again, you know, Led Zeppelin's a great example. You know, they were huge in the seventies, but they didn't have the same cultural cachet that the Beatles did. They weren't universally loved like the Beatles were and are today. Uh, I would say Led Zeppelin is much more universally loved today than they were, you know, at, at, at its time. But my point being that, uh, that these four guys had, you know, got to and then had to <laughs> experience This level of fame that just really is unfathomable for most people. We've seen it in little ways. You know, obviously the royals uh, in the UK get a bit of that. Certainly when Princess Diana was alive, she kind of had a bit of that cachet. You know, some of the boy bands, you know, kind of had an inkling of that. But there was no sustainability and it wasn't, you know, there are famous stories of ushers saying the amount of urine after a Beatles performance was unbelievable. And I don't think that ever happened again. And I'll leave it. I'll leave it with that.
0: You know what? That's that's a beautiful way to end that. I look everything that you've been saying as pot is blowing my brain up and it's giving me like 50 questions to the point where we may just need to do this again at some point in the future. (laughs) Sure. Anytime. Thank you. Thank you. And what I'm going to do instead of that, since we're coming close on time is to abandon all of those and ask one more question. It's usually the question I start with. And that is tell people about you. Like, how did you come to all this? What's some part of your story that you think We want people to know that's significant. Why do you do what you do? Where do you come from?
1: That's a big, big question that I could go in a lot of different ways. I mean, oh, first of all, I was born and raised in Southern California. So, you know, entertainment capital of the world, you know, right there as it's as it's happening. Not that my parents were uh, involved in the entertainment uh, business, but uh, I did have friends whose parents were involved in the entertainment business. My parents moved around a lot when I was in high school. I went to five different high schools. And, you know, at the time it was horrible. It was, you know, really difficult as you're trying to learn social skills to be thrown, you into the deep end, uh, you know, multiple times as opposed to easing into it. But at the same time, it, I learned some really lifelong skills, you know, meeting people and, and not having issues with that, uh, you know, being open to ex- new experiences and uh, adventure and all of that, uh, you know, has is, is always been a, a big part of my life because of that experience out there. Music always spoke to me. I mean, as far as I could ever remember. I just loved it. I loved everything about it. I loved the storytelling. You know, one of my earliest musical heroes, and I'm not sure if I've said this on an interview before, was Johnny Horton because my dad was a big, he loved country music. And so the, the the most rock and roll I got when I was a kid was Johnny Cash, just so you know. Uh, not a lot of rock and roll. My dad was from Texas. My mom's from Denmark. Her interest was Engelberg Humperdinck. Oh, yeah. And yeah, and things like that. Maybe some Tom Jones I got, so, you know, who's like maybe rock and roll adjacent now. But, All right. but Johnny Horton, he would write these songs that were just these historical stories, you know, uh, North to Alaska or sink to Bismarck or or the Battle of New Orleans, you know. It's just, just, and as a kid, they're simple to understand, you know. And so I just, I gravitated to the story. Storytelling. And I was born a natural performer. Throw me on a stage any size as many people as you want. I do not have a problem with that. I will get up there and act like I know what I'm fucking doing. Luckily today, I kind of know what I'm doing. But when I started, I didn't I didn't know anything other than I knew how to perform. I knew how to work an audience. Uh, you know, I went through theaters uh, as a kid and uh, did that all through high school and everything like that. So it's a natural ability. The singing part, though, that I had to learn. That I wasn't naturally born with. Weirdly, my dad was but he had no inclination to teach me. I had to learn it on my own. And so again, I'd learned stuff on my own. The other thing that I learned is I, I put almost every single band together myself. I was always the leader. So I learned leadership qualities. I learned how to be entrepreneurial. You know, I learned to work the gig economy before there ever was a gig economy. Yeah, But I will say, I always had a certain level of of lifestyle expectation, so I always had a day job. I didn't just do music 100% of the time because there is no money in that. Certainly, even back then, there was no money in that. You know, I wasn't willing to sleep on a floor, rat-infested floor, just to make it. And that may be a big reason why I never did, because I just wasn't willing to sacrifice that much. And almost everybody that I've spoken to, and I don't know about you, but almost every rock star that i've spoken to there was no plan b 100% it was this was it or die trying you know i don't know if i had that in me at the time so but you know my love of history and I've always had a love of history since I was a kid. All those sword and sandal movies—I love those things. You know, Moby Dick. I'm a reader. Love sci-fi and love uh, historical novels and uh, reading history books. Uh, anything about it. I can—I can talk about any point in history from the beginning of the universe till today. I, you know, I I can I can have a pretty erudite conversation with pretty mu- much most of the ancient civilizations and how they came about and you know how they existed and how they ended and how one led to uh to the next. So I had this big love of history. The other thing, as I said, I was a reader. So for me, learning about music was reading, reading books, reading magazines, reading anything I thought. I could figure out how to be a rock star by reading what the other rock stars did and the journalists and the commentators that commented on it. It helped a lot. Uh, you know, it's not exactly the best way to do it, but it helped a lot to get me to understand the business and how it works you know, from the low level. And we got to the point where we were headlining like uh, the big clubs at on Sunset Strip, the Whiskey, uh, Go-Go and the Roxy and places like that. My original band in my 20s was called Infrared. We were together on and off for about 10 years. And uh, we had a couple of demos produced by some famous people and things like that. And that's about as far as we got uh, out there. So always a day job, always an entrepreneur, but always a love of music, love of, of reading and history. And then I started a couple of tech companies in the nineties and I sold one in 2007 that made me some uh, some money. and i I signed a contract, worked for a company for another seven years. The first five were great. I should have left at that point,, uh, but I stayed two years too long, hated every minute of it. We got bought by uh, Carlisle, a um, uh, a big uh, investment uh, brokerage. It's it, it just and and, and literally, uh, my company was like about twenty five people. We sold to a company about thirteen hundred. When I left, there were over thirty thousand people in the company. So you're just a number. And as, as an entrepreneur, the worst thing you could be is just
0: a number. It's just yeah, impersonal.
1: Yeah. So in 2014, I left the company and I had to make a decision. You know, did do, what did I want to do? Uh, what did, you know, I was uh, in my mid fifties and. You know, I thought, geez, uh, do I want to do another tech thing? And I I kind of felt like that business had commoditized and I wasn't sure where tech was going to go. I ended up being right. Uh, tech really commoditized, but it wasn't for a few years later. But it was happening at the time. And, you know, I, I my passion was always music. And so how can I take all of this that I've learned and roll it into this thing? And so that's uh, where rock and roll archaeology started and where Pantheon picked up the mantle and where we're at today.
0: That's incredible. I've heard many people tell their stories, why they do what they do, how they got to where they are. And you've taken maybe 10 minutes and everything you said makes so much sense as oh, to thanks. what you're doing now. You, you, you've you woven all these pieces of your life together and your strengths and, and interests and all of that yeah, I mean I don't I don't know how else to say like you you've created this concise like this is why I do what I do. That's amazing. Well,
1: thank you. I've had a lot of time to think about it. So 8 years, so uh. <laughs>
0: And you tell stories, yeah. And,
1: and we tell stories, and and, and yeah, and, yeah. What did we learn about telling stories? Keep it moving forward. Yeah. Uh, yeah, keep, <laughs> yeah. keep, the, right. keep the keep uh, the the asides and the uh, the side tracks, uh, the back
0: alleys uh, to a minimum. Yeah, right? if we can, you know, it's not always easy. Well, listen, Christian, thank you so much for joining me. This was amazing. Of course, Nick, I had the greatest time, and like I said, I'm going to have to just think of a way to write down all those questions and. <laughs> <laughs> for you on some other day, you know?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm always good for, uh, you know, a philosophical discussion on just about anything. Uh, like I said, my uh, interests are wide. I don't know about the depth of uh, some of it, uh, you know, uh, but I, I, I have a pretty extensive general knowledge background. And, uh, and and I weirdly, I think that's the world we live in. I mean, expertise is now left to the machine, you know, because uh, I can be an expert on anything. If you give me enough time, all I got to do is jump on the Wikipedia and the Google and yep. and you know start at Wikipedia and then Google and get deeper and deeper and follow the Dunning-Kruger uh, graph and uh, you know I can become an expert in whatever fairly quickly so the machine is there for the expertise. Mm. I think the future of humanity or the the human interaction with that is to know where to find it, where to find that expertise, where to you know the 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 general knowledge uh, is that it's it, I'm, at, at the same time maybe it's just a yin yang. Uh, you know, you need them both uh, when you get right down to it.
0: Ah, I love that. Yeah the law of contrast, you know? Yes. I, I read something somewhere. It said contrast was the first law of art, you know, and, and I don't know if it's mm-hmm. true or not, but it, I love, I just love the concept.
1: Well, all you have to do is look at a black and white uh, photograph and that'll tell ah, you. Everything you need
0: to yeah, there you go. Very there true. you go. Well, we're going to have to have one of those philosophical discussions sometime. Thanks again for joining me. Anytime, Nick. Uh, And thank you all for watching and listening. Please go to PantheonPodcast.com, explore everything. I'll put that link and a couple of other links or just some information about Christian down uh, in the text. And as always, I appreciate you spending time with me. My objectives here are music, conversation, and connection. Thanks again, and I'll talk to you next week.